Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Welcome. These special Dialogue podcasts were recorded at the Spirit of Dialogue conference at Utah Valley University on September 30th as part of the 50th anniversary celebration held that day. You can find more information about the conference and the celebration at Dialogue's website, www.dialoguejournal.com. The Spirit of Dialogue conference lunchtime session was focused on Armand Moss, who described the Dialogue dream from inception to the present. Uh, I truly believe that Armand Moss is uh, one of the lions and one of the pillars of the Mormon intellectual community of the past half century. And we owe a great debt of gratitude to him, along with so many others. So I'm thrilled that he could be here today uh, and uh, spend the day with us. And so we're going to turn the podium over to him for some reflections on dialogue and his interactions with it. Hopefully we'll have time for a few questions, and then around 1230 we'll we'll, uh, break for lunch. So uh, turn it over to Armand. What a great moment this is in Mormon cultural history. The first and only periodical in Mormon studies, independent of church auspices, has endured for half a century and two generations. (coughs) During that time, furthermore, dialogue has repeatedly demonstrated its prescience having published numerous articles and special issues on topics which, at the time they appeared, were too innovative and controversial for general LDS consumption, but which have since then been assimilated and normalized by the Mormon cultural and intellectual mainstream. Some of them have even been vindicated by several of the new topical essays published on the church website. Think, for example, of the articles on the race issue, on polygamy, especially in its post-manifesto days. Think of uh, Book of Abraham essay, essay on the divine feminine, and numerous other expressions of feminist aspirations. We were reminded of many of these in earlier sessions this morning. Besides such such influential individual articles, we have seen many entire issues of book length on special themes or topics, such as the story pink issue in the summer of 71, and several (coughs) others devoted especially to women's concerns as in the winter of 81, sometimes called the Red Issue, and again in the fall of 2003. All of this has been made possible by the dedication of the hundreds of men and women who have served on the various dialogue teams during these many years. Especially crucial in this history, of course, have been the individual editors and associate editors who have served terms of five or more years at generally modest levels of compensation. 
they were all young scholars just starting out. And, excuse me, I skipped a sentence uh, in reference to the editors. Indeed, the editors during the first decade received little or no compensation. They were all young scholars just starting out in their academic careers, either as graduate students or as newly appointed junior professors. And the time and energy some of them gave in those early days to ensure the survival of dialogue cost them dearly in setbacks to their personal careers. Since then, the journal has survived on the voluntary services and donations of many supporters, but especially on the large donations of a very small number of major donors who seek no public acknowledgement and rarely get any. Lately, our very competent and conscientious board of directors has established a permanent endowment. If and when the goal of that endowment is reached, its proceeds will ensure the future of dialogue for another 50 years. Yet there are no guarantees about dialogue's future, and there never have been. The relatively favorable circumstances in which the journal now survives can easily allow us to forget the many struggles and setbacks of past decades. Many of these are recounted in the history of dialogue by Debra Anderson, the first four installments of which can be found in past issues, and other installments will follow. It is important that we never forget the personal costs and sacrifices borne by those editors and many other dedicated dialoguers whose careers, family relationships, and, and even church relationships were burdened by their commitment to dialogue during a period in LDS history when their efforts were appreciated by very few and actually opposed by many others. <coughs> Lest this historical reality be forgotten or ignored during our celebrations today, especially by the younger generations, please indulge me for a few paragraphs of distressing reminiscences. <laughs> I suspect it's not really possible for today's generation to understand just how bleak the Mormon studies scene was 50 years ago, when Gene England and a handful of other bright young LDS scholars sacrificed so much to launch the Dialogue Project. The number of scholarly books available on Mormons in those days could be counted on the fingers of one hand almost literally. Works of an apologetic and polemical kind were plentiful, of course, but books that we would regard today as serious academic studies were limited to those by Nels Anderson, Leonard Arrington, Fawn Brody, Juanita Brooks, Ephraim Erickson, Sterling McMurrin, Lowry Nelson, Thomas O'Day, and very few others. There were some early dissertations on Mormons that were unpublished and not readily accessible, and a few articles in professional academic journals, but not many. 
A novice in those days, as I was, could feel that he or she had a thorough bibliographical comprehension of Mormon studies world after only a few days in a good university library, like Bancroft, Berkeley. There were no independent periodicals dealing with Mormons or Mormonism in 1965. BYU studies had been going several years, but it was never truly independent, especially in the Wilkinson era, and its offerings in those days seemed rather timid and prosaic. Into this largely uncharted territory wandered a group of young LDS scholars, including especially Eugene England, G. Wesley Johnson, Francis Menlove, Paul Salisbury, Joseph Jepson, all of whom happened to have current or recent connections with Stanford University. In establishing dialogue in 1965, they shared a dream informed by a common religious heritage. About the same time, a similar dream was given expression by Leonard Arrington and the founders of the Mormon History Association. This was a dream that drew upon the traditional Mormon ideals, such as the ongoing quest for truth, the application of both faith and intellect in that quest, a testimony that truth would eventually prevail, a voluntary commitment to good works, both inside and outside the church, and a love for Mormon history and culture. In their youthful naivete, however, these early founders were rather selective in the Mormon values on which they relied. They were soon reminded by some of the church leaders that traditional Mormon ideals also included following the prophet and our file leaders, that to be learned is good if and only if we hearken to authoritative counsel, and that we must not counsel the brethren or attempt to steady the ark. A few of the presiding brethren in the 1960s seemed supportive of efforts like dialogue and Mormon History Association, at least in the beginning. But these were not a majority of the leadership. Many leaders and members in those days were still viewing such enterprises as dialogue from within a church that had been carefully circling the wagons against decades of persecution and ridicule. Mormondom was still very much in a binary mode in those days, so that everything published about Mormons or the church tended to be classified as either pro or anti. Leonard Arrington has recorded his astonishment at finding his great basin kingdom originally classified as anti-Mormon in the church archives. Let us not forget, furthermore, that the 1960s and 1970s saw the launching of a decades-long period of retrenchment and correlation in church governance as the leadership represented by the McKay First Presidency was succeeded by increasingly conservative leaders among the presidency of the 12. Such then, it was the historical context in which the youthful and optimistic founders of dialogue aspired to launch what they described, and here 
I'm going to be quoting from the statement of purpose that has appeared on the very first page of dialogue from the very beginning, from the very first issue. Such then was the historical context in which the youthful and optimistic founders of dialogue aspired to launch what they described as, quote, an independent quarter established to express Mormon culture and to examine the relevance of religion to secular life. Edited by Latter-day Saints who wish to bring their faith into dialogue with the larger stream of world religious thought and with human experience as a whole, and to foster artistic and scholarly achievement based on their cultural heritage." Unquote. Modest as such aspirations might seem in retrospect, they posed a challenge to a church leadership born mainly in the 19th century, which had set itself precisely against the larger stream of world religious thought of such interest to the dialogue founders. And as for the secular life, the, the, the main concern of the church leaders was its encroachments already occurring on the sensibilities of church membership. After all, this is when the age of Aquarius was dying. <laughs> Thus, to many of the brethren of mid-century, an independent quarterly, quote unquote, by definition, meant independence from their protective surveillance <coughs> over the impressions disseminated about Mormonism to the general public. By authors they did not sponsor, however benign those authors' intentions might be. Still fresh in the minds of the leaders were the cases not only of Fawn Brody, but also Juanita Brooks and the so-called lost generation of early 20th century Mormon writers, some of whom might have had good intentions and sympathetic inclinations, but who had nevertheless added grist for the anti-Mormon mills. Indeed, even those brethren and church administrators who began with a favorable inclination toward the new dialogue enterprise would often express their misgivings about what the journal might become in the future, however loyal and committed the founding scholars might be in the beginning. Besides the misgivings of church leaders, some of them in very high places, Dialogue's founding prospects were shaky for other important reasons as well, starting with the finances. Although the announcement about the new journal with its solicitation of subscriptions had been successful enough to cover the publication for the entire first year, the funding thereafter became a constant struggle. In general, subscriptions are never adequate to cover expenses for specialized journals like Dialogue, so fundraising had to be constant, as it still does. The financial compensation to the editors during the entire first decade at least was never more than a token. Their work for Dialogue was a labor of love, just as their church callings were. The Dialogue dream, in short, was an impossible dream that should not have survived even one decade, to say nothing of half a century. Yet survive it did, but always with serious financial stresses, especially in its earliest decades. 
One, one source of stress was the unexpected fluctuations in subscription levels. Dialogue subscriptions have fluctuated widely, widely over the years, from as many as 8,000 during its earliest days to, as few, to fewer than 2,000 where it is now. Every time a controversial issue or article is published, a certain number of offended subscribers would be lost, usually permanently. Others were lost because they found dialogue offerings too bland. <laughs> Fluctuating subscription income has sometimes meant also delays in the publication schedule. And subscribers have been quite unforgiving whenever the journal has fallen behind schedule for more than an issue or two. That in turn means more lost subscribers, and the vicious circle becomes a downward eddy. <clears throat> Hostility from an already wary church leadership has been implicated again here as well, for it has scared off potential authors employed by the church education system and by BYU. To this day, inexplicably, the BYU administration remains very unfriendly to dialogue, which for 50 years now has been the leading, if not the only, independent journal in the rapidly emerging discipline of Mormon studies. Hostility in high places, whether actual or only assumed, has the ironic effect of greatly reducing not only the more conservative segments of the readership, but especially reducing the more conservative potential authors who might otherwise provide the very balance that some critics find lacking in dialogue. Of course, it's not as though there is a large base of potential subscribers for any of these unofficial journals. Even, by use, even BYU studies, enjoying the full approval and financial backing of the church, has never achieved more than a few thousand subscribers. There is simply a pervasive cultural resistance in the general LDS membership to the consumption of religious literature not considered approved by church leaders, with a preference in most cases, indeed, for officially published manuals and websites. Very few of the saints seem to have either the time or the interest to subscribe to the more scholarly Mormon literature. And even when they do, they will prefer publications distributed under BYU or other official auspices. At the same time, there seem to be many other Mormons, especially in the younger set, who are satisfied to share their ideas and opinions in long essays on the blog sites, but who don't subscribe to dialogue and never have offered their publication for work there. For, excuse me, never have offered their work for publication there. That's enough, however, about the struggles of the past, perhaps more than you wanted to hear. Yet I wanted to review these struggles, especially within the context of this great anniversary celebration, lest we forget the costs and consequences that have been required to get to this point. In particular, I hope that the younger and emerging generations who will be responsible for dialogue's future will always remember and honor 
the dialogue tradition. Let me summarize what that tradition means to me. First, a deep appreciation for the Mormon heritage and, the, and editors who continue to be unselfishly motivated by that appreciation rather than by some expectation for financial improvement or by prospects for career advancement. Authors and editorial boards devoted to fairness and balance with a quest for understanding the religion and its ways rather than with a zeal for reforming them. And a careful preservation and enhancement of the financial resources by boards and directors and editorial teams so that dialogue can become and remain financially independent as well as intellectually independent. For its intellectual independence can always be questioned as long as it is not financially independent. The new endowment fund for the Dialogue Foundation will be the chief means for accomplishing that financial independence. So please, pitch in, help us ensure Dialogue's future by earmarking some significant donations specifically to the Foundation's uh, dial, uh, endowment fund. Thank you very much for your attention. I guarantee Armin's heard worse than anything you might say. I think everybody's ready for lunch. <laughs> to hear you, Armand, and what a, a great influence you've been in the 
Mormon community, Mormon intellectual community, and Mormon studies, I think the, we have been enormously blessed to have had uh, the, uh, the best uh, sociological studies done in the church and on Mormonism by you and a few other people. And I'm wondering if you could say anything about uh, the, uh, the importance of sociological study and kind of where we are now. Are there a generation of young sociologists who can do the kind of penetrating independent work that you produced and the dialogue is published? There are a few uh, uh, sociologists in the next generation that have an interest in things Mormon. Uh, one of them is uh, uh, Ryan Cragen and uh, uh, there's a uh, Rick Phillips he frequently collaborates with. Um, and the interesting thing to me about watching the development of, of that in, in Mormon studies generally is that um, we've reached a point, at least in, in I think, uh, the sociological writing, where people who are no longer believers and people who are still quite devout believers can interact and uh, deal with each other without uh, any hard feelings or without any enmity. Uh, that, that, when I started out, why who was still going to church and who wasn't was a big deal, um, among, among, at least among sociologists. I don't know how it was among some, in some of the other disciplines. But, uh, but I don't see that anymore. Um, I know several uh, uh, sociologists at, uh, at BYU and elsewhere in Utah who've done some very good work on, on Mormon studies. And one, they show up with others at our, uh, our, our national disciplinary meetings while they all just get along fine and comment on each other's work and strengthen each other's work. So I'm kind of optimistic about the future. If you were 50 years younger, what issues would you be writing and uh, doing research on for the next uh, If I were 50 years younger? I don't know if I can remember that part. <laughs> um, well, um, you know, I, besides writing on the race issue, I also wrote on, uh, on uh, some family questions. Uh, but my main interest as a sociologist has almost always been in the uh, organizational arrangements in institutions and how uh, those organizational arrangements are affected by the various vested interests that people have, um, whether they're, these are vested interests as church leaders or vested interests as dialoguers, vested interests as uh, uh, millennials or whatever they are. Um, and uh, so I'd, I'd like to see more uh, research done in, in sociology that emphasizes um, the, uh, an analysis of the organization, the, the institution in general, and within that institution, uh, the, the way it's organized and the way 
these organizations within the institution uh, are affected by their organizational interests. You know, I think if you'll talk to anybody who works for the church, and, and, and some of them work for the missionary committee, and some of them work for historical department, and work for other things, they each have their own interests that they're trying to serve uh, in, in the work that they do. And sometimes they, they butt heads. Um, among uh, the, the general authorities of the church, I think there's a, uh, you know, the first thing you have to remember is that there's a very selective recruiting of the younger ones done by the older ones. But that with the passage of time, different parties among the general authorities, sometimes based on age, sometimes other things, develop countervailing interests. And those countervailing interests show up in um, church policy and in changes of church policy. I know that's not supposed to happen when everything does by, supposed, supposedly goes by divine inspiration, but uh, as, uh, as sociologists, we're always, and as LDS sociologists in particular, we're always anxious to, that it be understood that divine inspiration may very well be operative in very parts of the very parts of various parts of the church, but it isn't the only thing that's operative. And when we when we start studying the way the church operates as a human institution, why we we have a lot better explanation for why some things happen than I think if we just assume it all has to be by divine inspiration. I, Unaccustomed as I am to brevity, that was going to be Well, good. We've got to wrap up this session. Let's give Armand another. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.